Chapter Eight of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. The Rivers of Lancashire. Having in the four chapters just passed dealt in some detail with the main features of the historical development of the county, we turn now to treat a little more fully the physical features that were outlined in Chapter Three and first of the rivers, which are such a striking feature of its scenery. The rivers of Lancashire, and we shall see that this is true also of the lakes, fall into several classes. North of the sands, with the exception of the Brathy, they take a southerly direction, feeding or draining the lakes which lie north and south, according to the relief of the district. The streams that reach the sea there widen to beautiful estuaries, of which something is said later, south of the sands the rivers take a more or less south-westerly direction though the wire and the mersey swing round to the north-west before entering the sea owing to the varied surface of the county all its rivers must at one time have been beautiful several of those north of the great coalfield are still exceptionally so but the streams that flow through the industrial areas have lost their earlier charm only here and there do they give glimpses of their former glories the principal rivers of Lancashire do not rise in the county. The Loon, for example, taking its rise in Westmoreland, is in Lancashire for only two-fifths of its course, while the Ribble and the Hodder, having their origin in Yorkshire, may have their lengths about equally divided between the two counties. Of the Mersey we have spoken elsewhere. Formerly, as the land tells us, the name did not apply to the whole stream. Below Runcorn it was known as Runcorn Water, here it widens to a great bottle-shaped estuary, with Crosby Channel as its neck. Writing about a quarter of a century ago, when he was Professor of Physics at Liverpool University, Sir Oliver Lodge said of this estuary that it was represented by a large expanse of shallow water, with a few dry channels. The width of the river here varies from two to three miles, and this track constitutes a gigantic basin twelve miles long and two and a half miles broad capable of storing at high tides 600 million tonnes of water. This great reservoir gets filled at every spring tide, half filled at every neap tide, and its scour, as it empties itself twice a day, is sufficient to maintain a deep and open channel, not only in the estuary, but eight miles further out to sea. The Mersey still has some pretty wooded stretches near Didsbury, and along the shore from Hale to Speak and Garston, from which we may gather some conception of what it was before industrialism darkened its waters. Of its tributaries, the Tame forms the southeastern boundary of the county, and it was the valley of this stream that was chosen for what is now the line of the London and North Western Railway into Yorkshire. The Irwell, however, has a more pronounced individuality. On Deerplay Moor, some two miles north of Bacup, the occupants of a small house will show you, in their cellar, a spring which they assert is one of the sources of the river. Another spring, deep down in an adjoining field, comes to the surface at a drinking trough, a photograph of which was given to me as marking the other source of the Irwell. From this point the stream runs merrily down the channel it has cut for itself through the moors of the forest of Rossendale. But almost from its source it has been utilised in years past for driving mills, which are threaded all along its banks, as they are also along the banks of its tributaries, the Irk, the Roch, and the Medlock. The mills on the Irk were noted as early as the 16th century by Leland. Swinging round to the west of the high ground of the forest of Rossendale, the Irwell takes a direct southerly course, 
between Scoutmore on the east and Holcombe Moor on the west, emerging, as it were, from a great gate in the hills to be joined near Radcliffe by the Roch, which, taking its rise on the slope of Blackstone Edge, comes down its broad valley to meet it. Here the combined streams turn sharply to the west, and at this point, apparently, we reach a crisis in the history of the Irwell. The geologists see evidence that at one time the Irwell continued its course westwards, and perhaps found its own outlet to the Irish Sea. Why then should it now swerve back to the south-east, as it does by Farnworth, and so continue through what was once beautiful green country to Manchester, where it once more swings to the west, and is today lost in the ship canal? The answer seems to be that the Great Irwell Valley Fault diverted its course, and so, as the geologists will tell you, made Manchester, for Manchester lies where the streams of the Irwell Basin converge. The rocks of the Coal Basin, as we have seen, dip towards the city in a great semicircle, and the Irwell Basin is practically coterminous with the Hundred of Salford. It's interesting to note once more how the railways have utilised the valleys that the rivers have carved through the lofty uplands of the forest of Rossendale. Further west it is the flatness of the sandstone plain and the low western margin of the coalfield that gave the engineers their opportunity. A wild and beautiful stream the Irwell must have been before it was harnessed to the service of man. Enough remains to show us that. The western half of the great Rossendale anticline is drained by streams running north and south. Down the wild and beautiful Turton Valley, where even now you may see the very railway banks covered with bluebells in the spring, runs the Bradshaw Brook to join the waters of the Tonge, issuing from Belmont Lake. Northwards from the same watershed, on the other hand, flows the Darwin. Rising on Turton Moor above the town that bears its name, this river flows through the richly wooded Horton Bottoms, graphically described by Ainsworth in the Lancashire Witches washes the foot of the steep green hill that is crowned by Horton Towers, wanders through Samsbury Bottoms, and finally enters the Ribble at Waltonley Dale, where it shares with that river all the romantic memories of the Preston Rout, as described in an earlier chapter, and has the honour, as we have seen, of being mentioned in one of Milton's most famous sonnets. Across the great plain between the estuaries of the Mersey and the Ribble run two streams, one of which, as we have seen, is not unknown to fame. The little Alt, whose name is said to mean a stream, rises near Highton, halfway between Liverpool and St. Helens, and enters the sea by the Crosby Lighthouse, just south of Formby Point. The Douglas has its source near Rivington Pike, and after sweeping round the eminence on which Wigan Church now stands, and on which the Roman fort of Cotchium stood once, turns northwards and enters the Ribble estuary above Hesketh Bank and Beckensall. These villages were once close to the shore, but land won from the sea has thrown them about a mile inland. The Fylde is drained mainly by the wire. Near the point where the narrow trough of Bowland opens out to the heather-covered fells to the west, I think I have never seen finer heather than grows here, two or three streams, the Grisdale, the Tarn Brook and the Marshaw, unite to form the wire, which later receives another Grisdale Brook and the smallest of the three Calders, coming down from Catsfell and Calderfell respectively. Near the Abbeystead Reservoir, where the first-named streams unite, the scenery is picturesque, but later the river winds lazily through the flat field. At the pretty village of St. Michael's on Wyre, it flows between high banks. A little lower down it becomes tidal, and mud-flats rob it of its beauty. 
a picturesque incident connected with this river that occurred during the civil war is related in an earlier chapter we have to be careful to distinguish between three calders we have just mentioned the smallest of the three which joins the wire near the point called calderhead two streams of this name take their rise with the one which flows southeast into yorkshire we are not here concerned the lancashire calder on the other hand flows northwest from this point through one of the most beautiful valleys in the county the gorge of cliviger whose very name is said to be derived from the cliffs that overhang it especially on the western side the river is fouled somewhat so as to spoil its beauty as it rolls over its rocky bed and its waters seem to be naturally stained by iron deposits but it reaches pretty scenery again near wally as is described in ainsworth's novel full justice is done to the beauties of this stream and the valley through which it flows by mr ormerod in his monograph entitled calderdale which is illustrated by the author's own delightful photographs of the calder scenery preserving much that perhaps we shall not see again it is pleasant to descend into this beautiful vale beside one of the streams that flows deeply down its western slope the streams for example that come down on either side of thievely pike and bring you out in front of the beautiful home of the whitakers at holm in the little churchyard above the hall here is buried sir james york scarlet who led the charge of the heavy brigade at balaclava rounding the hill to the north-east we come upon the brun a tributary of the calder that gives its name to burnley and here we are on classic ground on the banks of the brun stands the hollins the home of philip gilbert hamerton and high up the stream at the little old-world hamlet of hurstwood hardly altered from what it may have been in the sixteenth century stands spencer's house about half-way between the elizabethan building known as hurstwood hall the fine inscription upon it is dated fifteen seventy nine and a smaller dwelling typical of the same period known as tattersall's tenement upon very doubtful evidence write the authors of the victoria history of lancashire the poet spencer is said to have sprung from this family and it is supposed that he composed his shepherd's calendar while staying with his relatives here the writers of the article on spencer in the dictionary of national biography are much more confident they boldly assert that the poet's hereditary connection with the Burnley district is corroborated by his dialect, that we find many traces of the north-east Lancashire vocabulary and way of speaking in the shepherd's calendar, and finally, and most courageous of all, that the most plausible theory seems to be that Rosalind was one Rose, daughter of a yeoman named Dineley, who lived at Clitheroe. Mr. Ormerod has summarised the evidence and the arguments in his Calderdale, and there we must leave the question, only adding that whatever be the truth of the matter, Hurstwood will well repay a visit. In Spencer's time, whether he was ever at Hurstwood or not, the upper waters of the Brune came singing down a narrow and beautiful gorge cut in the breast of Black Hamilton, and a spot at the top of the glen was traditionally known as Spencer's Seat. My one attempt to reach this ended in my finding myself up against the dam of a reservoir, and it is to be feared, I cannot speak with certainty, that Spencer's seat has been demolished in the interests of the Burnley water supply. Rising then, as we have said, in the breast of Black Hamilton, the Brun joins the Calder about a mile short of the point where the Calder receives Pendle water, also in its turn sometimes named Calder, and the Calder enters the Ribble just below the spot where the Ribble and the Hodder unite, thus justifying the oft-quoted couplet which asserts that the Hodder, the Calder, the Ribble and Rain all meet together in Mitten Domain. 
Just as an illustration of Carlyle's careful editing, we might quote a sentence here from his Cromwell. Cromwell, in his letter to the Speaker describing the Battle of Preston, confuses the Hodder with the Ribble. On the 16th, he says, he came to Hodder Bridge over Ribble. This is, of course, the old bridge now known as Cromwell's Bridge that crosses the Hodder a little below Stonyhurst. Over Hodder, rather, says Carlyle, which is the chief tributary of the Ribble in these upland parts, and little inferior to the main stream in size. Ribble from the northeast, Hodder from the north, then a few miles further, Calder from the south, after which Ribble pursues its old direction, draining an extensive hill tract by means of inconsiderable brooks, and receiving no notable stream on either side, till far down the Darwin from the east and south falls in near Preston, and the united waters, now a respectable river, rush swiftly into the Irish Sea all of which is an excellent description of the course of this part of the Ribble. And yet Carlyle himself is not quite correct, for the point where the Calder joins the main stream is not even one mile below its junction with the Hodder. The Ribble and the Hodder, as we have seen in the first chapter, form for perhaps nearly twenty miles the boundary between Lancashire and Yorkshire. Those who wish to sense these two streams will not fail to perambulate this most beautiful stretch of the county's borderline for the Ribble and the Hodder are two of the glories of Lancashire. Year by year the salmon come up these streams, and year by year people go in crowds to Paythorn Bridge, just across the border, on Salmon Sunday, to watch the spawning of the fish. Year by year the angler wades into these rivers and whips them for trout, and year by year the huntsman puts down the otters that have had their halts along the banks, and watching the wily creature as it comes to the surface to vent, cheers his hounds on to a kill. Those who have spent long spring days roaming by the banks of these streams will agree that ever afterwards the very name Hodder becomes synonymous with beauty. It has become so to generations of Stonyhurst boys, thousands of whom have had their joy of youthful sports along its banks, and carry with them through life indelible pictures of its charm. I propose that we should trace the Lancashire boundary along these two rivers, though indeed we might with advantage follow them first in their Yorkshire haunts. The Ribble, wandering amid open meadows as it does, between Wigglesworth and Long Preston, with Penny Ghent, a prominent object in the near distance, or plunging into its deep wooded dale between Gisborne and Sawley, before entering Lancashire. The Hodder, coming down through the wild forest of Boland by Sladeburn and Newton, where its waters are now to be captured to supply the wants of Blackpool and the Fylde and then winding round by Dunsop Bridge, where it receives the tributary streams that descend from Syke Fell and the Trough of Bowland, to link up with the Lancashire boundary just above Whitewell. We might start, for convenience, from Chatburn Station, and it shall be on a day near the end of May, when the twofold shout of the cuckoo is heard in the land, and the bare ruined choirs, where late the sweet birds sang, are bare no longer, but hung with a tracery that our foremost architects can only faintly imitate when the warblers have returned from over the seas, and from every copse comes the linked sweetness long drawn out of the willow-wren strain, the one strain that has a dying fall, when all the other little nimble musicians of the air are warbling forth their curious ditties. We will halt for a moment by Downham Hall to listen to the rich music of the black cat and the whispered shivering song of the wood-warbler in the sycamores, to admire the noble timber and to enjoy the view right and left. Parallel with the road by which we have climbed, 
the roman road from ribchester to ilkley has been climbing up downham park behind the high wall on our right and now in the field just above the park gates in the angle formed by the two roads we may see the ridge of the roman road plainly running up the hill till it is lost in the copse above the park wall here by the way is built right over a carried boulder which is marked great stone on the first edition of the six-inch ordnance map and is close to the roman road surely downham is one of the sweetest spots in lancashire to the left we note the contrast between the browns of waddington fell and the green slopes of grindleton close by stonyhurst boys will tell you that the chickweed winter green grows plentifully on waddington the copper beeches down in the valley by the ribble are a pleasing feature and if we lift our eyes to the horizon there are the familiar outlines of ingleborough and penny ghent wernside will be hidden as we pass the village with its quaint old stocks i choose the middle road we will sit for a moment on the steps of the church porch to look at pendle standing boldly up in the sunshine from the buttresses of so many shades of green that crowd round his base pendle is hoary just now with his spring bloom of cotton grass later another white bloom will be seen the delicate flower of the cloudberry and then we should find in the marshy places the flower that is named from lancashire there are three english counties that have given their names to flowers and of all three flowers surely the bright yellow star-like lancashire bog asphodel with its deep orange anthers and woolly filaments is the most beautiful it grows in many rotten moorish grounds in the kingdom says gerard who himself calls it the lancashire asphodel and is used in lancashire by women to dye their hair of a yellowish colour sitting here in the churchyard at downham we are reminded of one of the beautiful pendle legends it is said that in the belfry behind us there are three bells that once hung in the conventual church at wally abbey and that as the shepherds crossing the pendle on calm nights pass through ashendean clough or ravenholm they fancy they hear a soft low chime in the distance and believe that the monks bells at downham are still ringing for midnight prayers as they did centuries ago our progress will be slow for we shall be halting continually to identify some flower in the hedgerow or to search for a nest or to watch the cuckoo relentlessly pursued by a tiny bird or to listen to the indignant remonstrances that a lapwing is addressing to a lamb that has trespassed on her domain or to note a fine example of contorted strata in a limestone quarry and the instances of this round clitheroe are so striking that one of them was actually selected as an illustration for the memoir of the geological survey of the district suddenly where the hedge-banks are coloured as it were with a dark crane's bill and the deep-tinted water avons and not far from a dried pond-bed that is carpeted with horse-tail and marsh marigold we drop into a lovely wooded dell and find ourselves a little later following the lancashire boundary by the side of the pretty ing's beck where the fields are strewn with the rose-coloured pasture lousewort and the woods with the purple orchis further up the beck to the right the roman road from ribchester crosses it into yorkshire we follow the beck through a wide green strath until it runs under the sawley road at smithies bridge and enters the ribble into the broad green meadows beyond where the kine stand cooling themselves in mid-stream and a mare is drinking at the water's edge while her baby new to earth and sky is vainly trying to follow her example it will be remembered that the ribble has not only been for part of its course the dividing line between lancashire and yorkshire but that for long years also 
the stream as a whole was a dividing line separating first of all into ripam et mersham from the country to the north of it and separating the diocese of lichfield from the diocese of york long before the huge diocese of manchester had been thought of and now for many miles if we follow the two rivers our attention is distracted not so much perhaps by the flowers as the birds for we are in the very midst of that strange mingling of joy and anxiety the nesting season three or four sandpipers shoot by close to the water with that shrilly sweet whistle which is surely the most joyous of all bird calls the red shanks and the wagtails stand bowing quaintly on stones in mid-stream across the river the sand martins are flitting in and out of their homes in the river bank and then skimming the water with the swallows the house martins and the swifts and see i speak only of what i've seen myself with a sharp whistle a dark bird shoots upstream that shows at first a burst of deep chestnut red and then a flash of turquoise blue it is tennyson's sea-blue bird halcyon the secret splendour of the brooks once more the heavenly power makes all things new at least one note is missing in the charm of song that rings through the land i do not remember to have heard the chiff-chaff once in all my wanderings by these lovely rivers and not more than once have i seen there the quick glance of the spotted fly-catcher as it darts out from its perch and back again the county boundary does not keep to mid-stream all the way occasionally it comes ashore and cuts off a tiny loop of land on one side or the other in two yards you'll be in yorkshire i was told once as i was wandering along the lancashire shore why is this we've seen already that further down the course of the river has so changed within the period of written history that a great part of the roman fort at ribchester has been washed away similarly just before the county boundary leaves the hodder beyond whitewell it becomes the cord of a wide arc of the stream thus the variations in the map that we might hastily attribute to careless draughtsmanship are possibly indications of changes in the bed of the river since the first boundary was set after passing two bridges we reach brungerley and here as we've already seen tradition has been busy just above the point where the stone bridge now crosses the stream people who still remember them will show you where the hipping stones stood though indeed a quarter of a mile upstream the nearly vertical strata have provided natural hipping stones enough to satisfy anyone it was here as we have seen that henry the sixth crossed and somewhere about here some say in the wood now occupied by brungerley park that he was taken not far from brungerley too was the inn whose sign showed the duel upon don the legend of which is too familiar to need repetition a little below brungerley a long weir captures the water for the low moor mill and here is a fine exposure in the river-bed of the carboniferous limestone dipping apparently to the south-east it is better perhaps to take the yorkshire side of the river below the mill and to return to the left bank at eddisford here we come upon the birds once more the black-headed gulls are everywhere a colony of sand martins is busy at the southern end of the horseshoe bend that sweeps round the green strath opposite to henthorne house a pair of sandpipers circle moaning in the air or perch on the rails uttering that most plaintive of all bird cries and so advertising to the best of their ability that which they are most anxious to conceal the swallows ply their ceaseless toil above the water while the red shanks whirl around overhead uttering their shrill and oft-repeated cries and drooping their wings as though even at that height 
they would brood their defenceless young as we have seen already the joys of the nesting season are touched with sadness turning our back on the river here for one moment we see that from this point the whole ridge of pendle comes into view as we now approach great mitten the view is very fine the river cuts into its high precipitous bank in a grand curve while its right bank is fringed by a low meadow that must be covered in flood time for those who live by these streams will tell you what you may indeed see by observing the trees by the waterside that the artificial banks that have been raised in the low-lying country are none too high for the rise of the water in the rainy season well above the meadow stand the church and cemetery of great mitten where the shireburn monuments are and the tower and the trees are finely silhouetted against the dark wooded mass of kemple end over which the sun hangs as if loath to leave such a lovely scene while the bridge across the ribble just beneath is buried in a mass of dark foliage below this well-known bridge the ribble makes a fine sweep under rich timber before it receives on its right bank the broad and beautiful hodder it is pleasant to sit on the narrow tongue of land between the two rivers and look downstream across the beautiful waters meet glistening in the sunshine the ribble babbling noisily on its course the hodder gliding smoothly into it and the two uniting in a dark central pool beyond which rises a belt of trees and then the pendle range above wilpshire we may well end our day here and wandering back to mitten bridge sit above the cliff beyond it and hope against hope that an otter will come down to fish the dark pool far below us we watched one here once and that hope often deferred though always justified is one of the charms of wandering by these streams just before the hodder meets the ribble it flows below a steep cliff from the top of which a superb deeply wooded stretch of the river discloses itself it is our introduction to the scenery of this delightful stream and soon we find ourselves at one of the most famous points where it is crossed by two bridges we sit on the old narrow grass-covered bridge how narrow it is unprotected by parapet or railing and thank those who left this picturesque structure standing when the new bridge close by was constructed in eighteen twenty six for the combination of cromwell's bridge as it is called though it was standing a century before cromwell crossed it on his way to preston and the three arch bridge that superseded it and has now done duty for nearly a century at a point where the broad stream is shut in to the north and south by fine timber gives us one of the pictures of which lancashire is justly proud and our interest is not lessened when we remember that the road that leads down to the new bridge was constructed by a certain john loudon macadam whose ideas on roads were somewhat in advance of his time the road that led from the old bridge seems to have quite disappeared you linger on this old bridge taking the view now up the stream now down and watching the wagtails and the gulls disporting themselves on the long spit of pebbles below or on the sharp edges of the upturned strata in the river bed and then leaving lower hodder bridges follow the stream to higher hodder sometimes making your way through thickets far below which you can hear the roar of the river sometimes through woods by the waterside that are carpeted with the trim yellow pimpernel or its rival the little yellow loose strife of more careless habit where the woodcock flits noiselessly by and perching a few yards away assumes an attitude of mimicry looking for all the world like a piece of dead wood a sound of boys voices seems to tell us that we are near hodder place the preparatory school for stonyhurst and presently we reach the bathing place of the school in the meadows above if only we had time 
the stonyhurst boys would perhaps show us where to find the mealy primrose and the frog orchis whose haunts they know so well the views up and down stream from all the bridges on both rivers are fine but those on the ribble are perhaps not so rich as these it is above higher hodder bridge that they seem to reach their culminating point near sandleholm for example and bashall eaves where you find the beautiful globe flower growing close to the water's edge where the river winds perceptibly and in following it you rise at one moment to the top of a steep wooded cliff from which the stream is invisible being buried in foliage of many shades and then drop suddenly to a green walk close to the water's side to listen to the river babbling over its rocky bed to its accompaniment of bird song or watch the trout in the clear pools while the fussy curlews strange to find curlews here wheel over your head we emerge at last at doeford bridge and decide to finish our day by turning up the little river loud and so out into the open country by chipping where we can at last get our bearings it is then that we begin to realise how far the hodder has brought us we have rounded the thickly wooded promontory known as kemple end and find that the northern face of longridge is steep and bare of woods chipping is delightfully situated in open country with the green fells all around beacon fell on the west straight back of longridge to the south and nearer at hand to the north the graceful cone of parlick at whose foot the village lies to the right of parlick is the high ground of burnslack beyond which we look as it were through the gates of the forest of bowland where we must trace the hodder on the morrow a pretty path runs along the left bank of the hodder from doeford bridge and by following this we emerge at length from a deep wooded gorge with high rocks on the right at the tiny but picturesque hamlet of whitewell in bowland forest we are in yorkshire it's true but the notices in the church porch show us that we are still in the diocese of manchester from the hill above and behind this little village we obtain a grand vista up the hodder valley into the famous bowland forest here the river is seen winding its way in the open high green fells bounding it on all hands no sound is heard but the soughing of the wind and the occasional ripple of a curlew's call far up among the hills we see dunsop bridge at the valley's meet sitting here and looking up this long valley where merely a house appears here and there at long intervals i make out with my field-glass the tiny catholic church that stands at the mouth of the valley that runs back to the trough of bowland i can see the white townley monument in the churchyard and i remember that it is there that you are asked to pray for the soul of isabel burton indeed i have seen the nuns kneeling there telling their beads while a crimson light burnt at the altar and when later i have come down the valley in the dark from the beautiful trough of bowland the crimson light has been burning still we have yet one last stretch of the river to perambulate so we drop down to the valley again and there once more is the graceful cone of parlick to the left and the long ridge of burnslack and between us and them ridge upon ridge of green fells falling to a beautiful wood that encircles whitewell it is not far beyond the bridge that we reach the point where as we saw in our first chapter the county boundary leaves the hodder and strikes right up over syke fell here in the very heart of the wild forest of bowland completely encircled by green fells of great beauty we end our perambulation of the river boundaries of lancashire so far we have been following the ribble where it runs on the confines of the county but there are beautiful stretches of the river lower down above ribchester for example or near samsbury where it curves grandly in a horseshoe loop between the steep wooded banks of red scar 
of the estuary we have spoken elsewhere lastly the loon which has given its name to the county here again we may conveniently commence by approaching the main stream along one of its tributaries the county boundary which we saw in our first chapter crossing bowland forest and coming down the slopes of burn moor spans the river wenning near lower bentham and if we follow this stream westwards we come suddenly upon the castle at hornby occupying a strikingly picturesque site high up on the right bank of the river about a mile from the point where it joins the loon coming down from kirby lonsdale very little that we see of the castle now is ancient but we have shown that its story has romantic associations with the history of the county the loon enters lancashire less than three miles above tunstall the Brocklebridge church of jane eyre and only a little over a mile from cowan bridge the low wood of the same novel as we follow it down the broad valley with its green wall on the right the views looking back are very fine and the tower of hornby castle is always picturesque against a background of which the dominating feature is the bold mass of ingleborough with penny ghent peeping over to the right by carton the river sweeps out in a great loop away from the steep wall on its right bank and then suddenly the whole valley contracts as though blocked by debris through this obstacle the stream has cut its way in remarkable fashion by making a sharp turn to the south and then immediately turning north again so forming the famous crook of loon here three bridges are almost superimposed upon one another the railway strikes right across both arms of the crook and hurries on towards lancaster on the left bank of the river the road from caton crosses one arm of the crook and immediately mounts right over the railway bridge and makes for halton on the right bank the crowding of the bridges and the way in which the river which up to this point has been winding through a broad open vale is suddenly lost in a deep wooded gorge the suddenness of it all is very striking from some point on the hill above turner composed a picture in which he combined the various features with inimitable art some two miles below halton the loon forms another crook sweeping round the hill on which count roger of poitou chose to erect his castle more than eight centuries ago the hill on which a wing of roman cavalry is supposed to have thrown up fortifications ten centuries earlier statements to the effect that roman work still remains here should hardly be taken seriously apparently there may be evidence that the original norman castle at lancaster as was to be expected was of the mountain court form and that the norman keep still to be seen was erected by count roger the gateway is dated to fourteen o five though the inner archway belongs to an earlier time this famous entrance has been styled the greatest of english gatehouses though the site is only a hundred and twenty feet above the sea the views from it are wonderfully fine and extensive northwards as far as the lake mountains westwards over morecambe bay southwards across the fylde and eastwards past the northern fells of the forest of bowland to the limestone hills of yorkshire with a fine vista up the loon valley to the north-east to these advantages of position may be added the command in early times of the lowest ford on the loon at its foot with much that is gruesome in the details shown to visitors at the castle to-day we do not deal here but no one can stand on this historic site without reflecting for a moment at any rate upon the stories that the tragic muse could tell of the happenings here through the centuries of count roger there is as little to relate as of john of gaunt 
Even the legend that the latter cast a horseshoe while riding along one of the streets below is doubted now, though the horseshoe let into the street is renewed every seven years. But it was here that the abbots of Wally and of Sawley paid the last penalty. Here George Marsh, the Lancashire martyr, was imprisoned during the Marian persecution, and here in his prison he prayed and read in a loud voice, so as to be heard by the people who assembled outside in the evenings. Here, when the tables were turned, one recusant after another went to the gallows for the faith, or was kept in confinement, though the complaint of the Bishop of Chester in 1598, that the prisoners were free to hunt and hawk and attend horse-races at their pleasure, seems to show that discipline was sometimes lax. Here, in 1612, no less than ten individuals from Pendle Forest were executed for witchcraft. Here, within half a century later, George Fox was twice imprisoned for declaring truth, and doubtless passed his time in writing exhortations. Here, probably, his brave consort followed him. Indeed, one room in the castle is still called the Quaker's Room, the offence of these people being a refusal to take the oath of allegiance. And here, not to carry the story further, the captive reformers were brought in 1819 after the tragedy of Peterloo, as described in minute detail by Samuel Bamford. But it is time to turn from these sad memories to let our gaze sweep once more over the wide view, and to admire the graceful dome of the Ashton Monument that caps the highest ground in the township. Miles below Lancaster, just where the estuary of the Loon opens to Morecambe Bay, a tiny port is worthy of notice for historical reasons. It was at Sunderland, at the mouth of the Loon, that Cotton is said to have been first landed in England, and here the curious visitor may see a memorial, dated about 1720, to a certain poor Sambo, who attended his master from the West Indies, but died on his arrival in England. The tiny port is described in ancient documents, as at the foot of the water of the Loon. And here we may fittingly end what we had to say about the rivers of Lancashire. End of chapter 8